Well, thank you, Kayla. Good to see you today. I'm not used to seeing Kayla on Sundays. Uh, Her and Josh are very active uh, at their church, Hillcrest Baptist Church, but we're so grateful that she came uh, to join us today for Staff Appreciation Day. And then uh, on top of that, even agreed to sing. Thank you so much uh, for that. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we continue our series through Mark. I very much enjoyed the last couple of months or so just walking through these uh, very quickly moving, action-packed stories in Mark's gospel and his accounts of Jesus. Um, I have here, just as a little side note, uh, a piece of paper that somebody sat in the pulpit, okay? This is not a publicity stunt. I did not put this here, but uh, I have just noticed it, and I thought you may want me to read this, okay? Um, By the way, there's also a clock that someone put here. Um, here uh, on Pastor Appreciation Day, a, uh, a clock. It says it's 11.08, which I find that a little slow. But uh, this slip of paper, again, this was put here by someone uh, who I know not. But it says, the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and to have the two as close together as possible. <laughs> and you guys know how to make somebody feel appreciated. <laughs> I'll see, right? I'll see if I can do a good job uh, this morning of keeping the, uh, the beginning and the ending as close together as, uh, as possible. We're in Mark chapter 6, and what we have here is a magnificent story, one that pulls on our heartstrings in the most human of ways. Uh, we exalt the person of Jesus to such a degree, we often forget how human he was. And how human was that? He was every bit as human as you and I are human. Right Now, he was also divine in ways that we are not, but Jesus was fully human. And here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus, after having left his hometown, after having been baptized, signifying his entrance into public ministry, after calling disciples and really uh, attaining for himself status as a, a rabbi, right, a Jewish guru, teacher of God's law, Jesus now comes back to his hometown, uh, perhaps for the first time since he sort of became the talk of Galilee. This region where Nazareth was located, everybody had heard of this Jesus guy. And the folks back in Nazareth were like, Jesus? Like the Jesus that grew up here? We know him, and I mean, he was an okay guy, but we're hearing things about him that are just beyond um, the natural. They are miraculous. And so here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown, and as we'll read in just a moment, he really preaches at his home church, and for the first time, his hometown people get to see him for who he really is. And at first... They're amazed, but the amazement goes so far that they're confused, and then they wind up offended. And the newness Jesus brought to his hometown confronts us with a grave question of faith. Will we spend our lives building comfort, protecting the familiar, and shunning anything new, or... Will we accept Jesus and follow him as he paves a new path, new path for each one of us? Let's read the story together. Look with me. Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. It says, And Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown. And his disciples 
followed him. Okay, so he's a rabbi. Doesn't just mean they were tagging along. No, this would have been an official entrance into the city with his official followers. It says on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, I've hinted at this in prior weeks, but a teaching of God's word in the synagogue would be very similar to a preaching of a sermon in our modern day church. So this was something very similar. Jesus would have attended this synagogue with all these same people really for his whole life as just Jesus. Now here he is, a rabbi that the entire region is talking about. And so he begins to teach and notice it says, many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet It's not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And so Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about teaching among the villages I want to share with you a sermon this morning that I've titled, The Wonder of It All. The Wonder of It All. I want to offer to you from this story three pastoral admonitions today. Number one, don't let familiarity become a liability. Brothers and sisters, I look out across this sanctuary and I see people whose faces I have grown accustomed to seeing week in and week out. We are familiar with the things of God. We are familiar with the things of the church, with these padded pews and these scriptures and these worship songs. But if we're not careful, we can become so familiar with the things of God that they lose their wonder for us. And we see some of that here in this story about Jesus returning to his hometown. This was a hometown of good Jewish people. These people knew the word of God. These people gathered on every Sabbath in the synagogue to worship, to learn, to celebrate what God had done. And yet, for all their familiarity with the things of God, when God did his greatest new thing and sent his son to the world, Because they were so familiar with the things of God, they missed the greatest thing God had ever done and just missed it all together. And a passage which begins with them marveling at this Jesus, the passage then ends with him marveling at them for their unbelief. These people thought they knew Jesus so well that they didn't think there was anything he was capable of that they didn't already know about. But let me tell you something about Jesus, okay? Jesus is the God of surprises. He doesn't do things the way that we always think that he should do them. And so this is a great question for you to ask yourself uh, periodically. When was the last time God showed up in your life and surprised you? He did something and you thought, now that's not what I thought he would do. 
He spoke to you and he said something and, and you thought maybe you'd feel good, but then when he spoke, you realized you were chastised. You thought he was calling you to something familiar, but he was calling you to something new. When was the last time God surprised you? Be careful that your familiarity with preaching or with worship or with the Bible doesn't become a liability that prevents you from seeing the new thing God wants to do in your midst. Jesus came to his hometown to save these people to heal these people, to teach in a way they never would have heard before, and yet they could not get over. Jesus was doing something he had never done before. They just, they tripped all over themselves at the thought that this normal person who grew up right there in the middle of all of them would now become this exalted figure. Often we think of Jesus. Now he needs to do what I think he needs to do. And if he's going to do a work, he's going to have to do it a certain way that follows a certain pattern with which I'm familiar. But Jesus shows up and says, y'all, I'm in charge, okay? So when I do what I'm going to do, it's going to be my way and it's going to be something new. I don't think the Lord ever wants us to get too comfortable because as soon as we do, our senses become dulled to the newness of the Spirit. Don't let your familiarity become a liability. Sometimes it's the things in our lives with which we're most familiar that prevent us from taking our next step of faith. We serve a good God, but y'all, he is not always predictable. He, he not always leads us into safe spaces, into comfortable places, but he will always lead us if we would but follow him. Some of you may be familiar with the children's literature, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a story by C.S. Lewis. Many of y'all read that in school. The, the, the entire series of seven books is, is really an allegory of the Christian faith that the great Christian thinker Lewis wrote for his nieces and nephews to try to explain to them what Christianity was all about. Well, there's a scene where these newcomers are learning about the Christ figure. In the stories, he's a lion. His name is Aslan. And so they begin asking questions about this lion figure. And uh, those more experienced explain, well, Aslan is a lion. He's the lion, the great lion. And one little girl said, well, well, I'd rather thought that he was a man. Is he safe? I would feel nervous about meeting a lion. And another who'd been there a while said, is he safe? Well, whoever said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He's the king. Jesus is the great lion of Judah. A lion is not predictable, but it is powerful. Brothers and sisters, don't let your familiarity with the things of God create complacency in your life, create a dullness to your senses where you no longer can figure where God is moving, what he's doing, how he is leading. Sometimes we get so used to handling the things of God, they begin to lose their luster or their appeal. I remember, uh, however many years ago that it was, I remember the first time I was ever asked to speak from the Bible in front of a group of people. It was a youth group. It was a big youth group. There was around 100 kids. And y'all, I was so just done in by the thought that I would handle the Word of God before real life people. I fasted. 
I prayed. I locked myself in a bathroom for an entire day and said, I will not leave until I have the word God wants me to have. And then I stood up in front of a bunch of middle schoolers and did my best. But I remember that feeling, the, the, the enormity, the weight, the gravity of handling the things of God. And I had better be careful lest preaching two, three times every single week makes it so familiar to me that it also becomes a liability. Be careful. Be careful. Had somebody in our church service last week, Lord help me, I don't think they're here this morning. If so, I'm about to offend them. But I don't think that they are. But it was somebody who was a guest, or so I thought. I'd never met them. I'd been here seven and a half years, never met this person before. And so I saw them after the service. I, I, I went and found them out. I introduced myself. I said, hey, I'm Deke. I'm the pastor. It's really great to have you worshiping with us today. And uh, I thought they would say something like, oh, well, thanks. Thanks for coming over. Good to meet you. I had a great... You know what they said? They looked at me like I had said something wrong, and they go, oh, well, I'm a member here. And of course, what I was thinking was, well, I've never seen you before. But they were so familiar with the notion of just church and having been baptized and having their name on a roll. They don't even need to come to worship or to church. Be careful and don't let your familiarity become a liability. Let me share with you a second pastoral admonition from this story about Jesus visiting his hometown. Invite Jesus to do something new in your life. Invite Jesus to do something new. That's what Jesus does. Jesus does new things. In fact, when he came on the scene, he, uh, he told a story about himself, which is sort of enigmatic. But uh, let me cite it to you in this sermon and see if it feels a little different. In Mark 2, verse 22, Jesus explained, speaking of himself, the newness of his ministry. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Jesus wants our hearts to be a fresh wine skin that can receive the new things he wants to do in our life. Jesus didn't come just to make you born again and new on the day you get saved and then let you wear out for another 50, 60, 70 years. He came because he wanted to reinvent you every single year of your life to make you new, to transform you from one degree of glory into the next more and more so that you could become like him. Jesus does not want you to stay the same. He wants you to change. We all know change can be real uh, alarming. It can be scary. It can be unsettling. We take all the things in our life that make us feel comfortable and we pad them. We put fences around them. We look at anybody out of our good eye if they come and try to change those things. But Jesus shows up and he says, I'm new. I'm going to do something new. And if you're going to receive me, you had better be ready to receive the new thing that I'm going to do. Let me tell you something about his hometown, okay? That this ancient town of Nazareth, they hadn't seen anything new in a long time. This was not a place of new things. Archaeologists, having looked at ancient Nazareth, have uh, surmised that the entire village was only about 60 acres, that's not a lot, of, a lot of room for a whole village to live. In fact, anthropologists estimate that could sustain at most 480 people. That's not a lot of people. I mean, that's so few of people that you really could know everybody. I mean, you could, you could know everybody or at least know who they belong to. 
There wasn't a lot of new things going on. These people knew Jesus. They knew his family. They knew his occupation as a carpenter slash builder, but they cannot accept him as this great rabbi or this prophet or this miraculous person all of Galilee is talking about. They tripped all over themselves at the thought that God would be doing something so incredibly new. But when we refuse to let Jesus do something new, we refuse him altogether because that's all that he does is the new thing. There's so much more to him than we could ever comprehend in any one moment with which we're comfortable. We must expose ourselves through faith to his newness all the time. What Jesus had done was apparently so out of character that uh, they were not going to let him get away with it, and they reject him altogether. Now, we're in Mark chapter 6. In Luke chapter 4, you can read an alternate account of one of Jesus' visits to his hometown. You can do the same in Matthew chapter 13. In Luke chapter 4, do you know what his hometown did to him after he showed up like this? You know what they did? They tried to push him off a cliff and kill him. That's the extent to which they rejected him. They were so scandalized at the prerogative he took upon himself as the Messiah. Jesus had not done anything wrong. He had not said anything untrue. But because they were unwilling to accept God was doing something new, they missed him all together. They could not deny his teaching. They could not deny his healing. But neither could they surrender their wills to the thought that he would be so profoundly new. Newness threatens our comfort, our nostalgia, our sense of security. Jesus has no problems with any of those things, but he wants you to get your comfort and security from him and what he is doing, not from a victory in the past or a comfort from yesterday. Why is it that Jesus, as we read earlier in our service, why is it that he told his followers to become like little kids? I think one way to explain that is little kids are encountering new things all the time because they're new to this world. Everything is new to a child, a child's sense of wonder, a child's sense of adventure. You know, it doesn't take long for that child to grow, to start uh, developing social sensibilities, to work their way into middle school and perhaps the awkwardness of some of those teenage years, to get their hearts broken, to be made fun of, to become young adults, to have to think about success or failure. And before long, this child filled with wonder, totally at home being themselves, instead has built a life of self-protection and they feel insecure. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to have faith in me as I do the new thing, become as a child. Everything's new when you're a kid. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So let me encourage you today. Invite Jesus to do something new in your life. One last pastoral admonition I want to share with you this morning. Never lose your sense of wonder. Now, this, of course, is related to the, um, the previous two points. But to lose your sense of wonder is to dabble in unbelief. We should never come to a place where we look at God or what he's revealed of himself in his word and just sort of yawn at that as if it's so common 
and something that we're so used to, we must regain our sense of wonder if we have lost it. If we lose our sense of wonder at God, we end up like his hometown residents, placing limits on him per our unbelief. And this is not limits in the sense that we've tied his hands. It's not as though if we believe, then God can do great things because we allow him to. And if we struggle to believe, then he can't because we have tied his hands. Listen, nobody ties God's hands. But when we don't have faith, that lack of faith in itself carries with it a judgment. And Jesus responds by saying, you know what? I'm just going to move on. I'm going to go to another village where people will accept the new thing that God is doing. And that's precisely what he did. There's a sense in which he wiped his hands and he shook the dust off his feet and he left his hometown and he journeyed forward for whomever would uh, capture that sense of, of wonder. You know, I'm fascinated in this passage that Jesus, toward the end of this story, he actually marvels at their unbelief. Now, there's another story where Jesus marvels at someone's faith. And so just as an interesting comparison, I wanted to see, well, what was it about somebody's faith that would cause Jesus to marvel and say, what faith? Compared to Jesus looking at these residents of his hometown and marveling at their unbelief. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, there's a story of a centurion. Okay, this would have been a soldier, um, uh, who worked for the Roman Empire, the centurion came forward to Jesus and he said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but if you will just say the word, then my servant will be healed. Jesus responded when he heard this, and he marveled at this man's faith. And he said to those who had followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Notice how Jesus marvels. Jesus marvels when we have the faith to let him do something new. He had not healed anyone just by his word from a distance before. This was a new work, but the centurion was not afraid of something new. But when Jesus' hometown citizens refused to let him do something new, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Why did the people of Nazareth react so negatively to Jesus? If we combine Mark 6 and this account that we've read with Matthew 13 and Luke chapter 4, which I'll elaborate in a couple of different ways on this story, if we combine them together, there's a few reasons that we can surmise. Here's why they struggled to accept Jesus and the new thing that he was doing. Number one, he didn't give them what they wanted. They just sort of assumed, hey, if Jesus is feeding the thousands and raising the dead, doing all these miracles, certainly when he comes to our hometown, he's just going to break loose and do everything we want him to do. But Jesus shows up and they're like, well, we can't control this guy. He won't just do what we want. And so they struggled to get on board. Not only that, he told them that they were sinners, which wasn't news to them. They knew that they were, but they struggled to hear it from him. Ultimately, Jesus challenged 
the status quo in their life. They had lost a sense of wonder. They thought whatever God was going to do, he had already done. They expected nothing new and they held out no hope. And so when the greatest hope to ever grace the planet Earth, Jesus showed up, they couldn't recognize him for what he was. Brothers and sisters, let me challenge you today. Never lose your sense of wonder. I want to close with this story. Some of you may have heard of the old-time evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith. He was one of the most beloved evangelists, really, of the last couple hundred years. When he would give his life story, crowds overfilled churches and auditoriums all over the world. His trips across the Atlantic Ocean were so numerous that historians disagree about their exact number. He was born Rodney Smith. He would later take the nickname Gypsy. He was born in a gypsy tent in Epping Forest, six miles outside of London, England. He received no education, and his family made a living selling baskets, tinware, and clothespins. His father, Cornelius, played a violin in the local pubs, and young Rodney would dance and collect money from the establishment. Little Gypsy was still a small boy when his mother died of smallpox, leaving six children without their mother. He never forgot seeing his mother buried by lantern light at the end of a lane in the forest. One day, his father Cornelius was invited to attend a gospel meeting at the Latimer Road Mission. Cornelius brought all the children along, and the gospel was preached. And at the invitation him, there is a fountain filled with blood. Cornelius, his father, fell to the floor with conviction. Soon he jumped up and he said, I am converted. Children, God has made a new man out of me and you will have a new father. Gypsy ran out of the church thinking his dad had gone crazy. But soon after, Cornelius's two brothers got converted and the three formed an evangelistic team and they went roaming the countryside preaching and singing the gospel. The converted gypsies were, were how they were known, and they were used in a wonderful way up until his dad lived to be 91 years of age. And when Gypsy was 16, he was converted as a result of several things. The witness of his father, hearing someone read The Pilgrim's Progress, meeting evangelist D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey, and he visited the home of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Standing at the foot of the statue of John Bunyan in Bedford, England, Gypsy gave his heart to Christ. And at that moment, he vowed to meet his godly mother someday in heaven. A few days later, Gypsy walked the aisle to make his public profession of Christ. It was November 1876. And as he came, someone whispered within his hearing, oh, it's only a little Gypsy boy. He got a Bible, an English dictionary, and a Bible dictionary. Not only did he get them, but he carried them everywhere he went, causing some people to laugh and to sneer. You don't know how to read, they said. Well, never you mind, he would respond. One day I'll be able to read them, and I'm going to preach too. God has called me to preach. He taught himself to read and to write, and he began to practice his preaching one Sunday afternoon, he went into a turnip field 
and people saw and heard him preaching to a field of turnips. He would sing hymns to the people that he met, and he began to be known as the little singing gypsy boy. One day, William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, noticed the gypsies and realized that this young gypsy had a promising future, and he asked the boy to be an evangelist for the mission. In his first sermon, young Gypsy Smith said, I'm only a gypsy boy. I do not know what you know about many things, but I do know Jesus. I know that he saved me. I cannot read as you can. I do not live in a house as you do. I live in a tent, but I have got a great house up yonder, and someday I'm going to live in it. My great desire is to live for Christ and the whole of my life to be useful in his service. For six years, Gypsy served on street corners and mission halls all over England. Since he was teaching himself to read, he wasn't very confident when he would read. This was the plan that he used when he preached in front of large groups and had to read the Bible. He said, I went on reading slowly and carefully until I saw a big word coming. I would stop and make a couple of comments, and after the comments, I would begin to read again, but I made sure to read on the other side of the big word. In 1879, he married one of his converts, and they enjoyed a very fruitful ministry together with the Salvation Army. It was during this time that that name, Gypsy Smith, took hold, and the name by which he would be known ever after. He had eight assignments with the Salvation Army, producing a total of 23,000 decisions for Christ, with crowds often up to 1,500 people in attendance for his meetings. In 1889, he left England for his first trip to America, he came here not knowing one person. He had nothing with him except his credentials from friends back home, and these he used to introduce himself to the church leaders. There was a church in Brooklyn who opened their pulpit to him for a three-week meeting. The 1,500-seat auditorium was packed every night, and 400 people came to know the Lord. On his second trip to America in 1891, he experienced a great revival that took place in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, where at one point he filled a 10,000-seat auditorium. At the age of 87, Gypsy Smith was very tired and ill. Thinking that the sunshine of Florida would be good for his health, he made his 45th crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. Three hours outside of New York, he died aboard the RMS Queen Mary in the isolation ward, stricken as he was by a heart attack. Here is his own testimony in his words. I didn't go to your colleges and seminaries. They wouldn't have me. But I have been to the feet of Jesus, where the only true scholarship is learned. The way to Jesus is not by Cambridge and Oxford, Princeton, Harvard, or Yale. It's over an old-fashioned hill called Calvary. I'm God's messenger from the gypsy tent. It's the message that's important, not the messenger. In the very last years of his life, American revivalist Vance Havner said to him, Gypsy, I heard you preach over 50 years ago. And my, how you blessed my heart then. I have never forgotten it. But here again tonight, how my heart was warmed and thrilled. Gypsy, tell me, what's the secret? And this old gypsy evangelist said, I've never lost the wonder of it all.
Brother, sister, have you lost your sense of God's wonder? Are you hesitant or afraid to think he might do something new in your life? Would you open your heart to Jesus today? Jesus is coming into the hometown of your heart. Will you receive the new work he comes to do? Will you bow with me? With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to invite you to respond to the sermon today. Maybe you've become so familiar with the things of God, with church, with worship, with church people, that you don't think God's got anything left for you. I want to tell you something. Open your heart to Jesus today. Say, Jesus, whatever you want, new, old, familiar, uncomfortable, whatever it is, Jesus, I'm going to let you have your way. If you're here this morning and you have to admit, Brother Deke, I've lost my sense of wonder. I'm still here. I feel like I'm supposed to be here, but I've lost something along the way. In just a moment when we stand and sing during our time of invitation, would you come and would you kneel at this altar and say, Jesus, give me my wonder back. I trust you, Jesus. I want to see you do that new thing in my life. If you're here this morning and you've been hurt and there's scars and you've put up walls, would you let Jesus tear all that down today and let him do that new thing he wants to do in your life. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we'll stand and you have the opportunity to respond to what Jesus has done in your heart today. Father in heaven, we ask now for your blessing. Lord, I pray for these precious people today. God, would you do something new in their hearts? Would you break up, Lord, that hard, dry ground on any heart today and plant something new? And Lord, may our response to you be yes, Yes, Jesus, have your way. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let us stand together and sing, I surrender all. You come as the Lord leads. The altars are open for the new work God is calling you.